0: White supremacists have weaponized the Middle Ages, brandishing medieval symbols on their signs and shields. Two Yale grad students, Molly Isaacson and Whitman confront neo-Nazis on the battlefield of propaganda, armed only with a mysterious manuscript and their knowledge of history.
1: welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Iftdecker, a medieval historian, and today we have something a little bit different. I'm joined by Phil Adamo, author of the recently released novel The Medievalist, for a conversation about medievalism in fiction and some of the real-life challenges facing medievalists. So Phil, welcome.
0: Hi Sarah, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for joining me. And why don't we start by having you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background.
0: Uh, Sure, I uh, am also a medieval history professor. I was a professor for 20 years and about three years ago retired. I did my graduate work at the Ohio State University. I specialized in church history and monastic history and I've written books and articles on both of those as well as popular articles uh, talking about the middle ages and other things. When I retired, I decided to focus on fiction, and that's where this uh, book came from. Uh, mm-hmm. The Medievalist, I think, contains lots of my my own experiences as a medievalist and my own sort of observations and reflections mm-hmm. on being a medieval scholar, and especially in this particular time in which we live.
1: Yeah, and that was certainly one of the things that really intrigued me hearing about your novel is that, of course, we get a lot of representations of... Uh, medieval history, of academia, of medievalists in particular, which are most of the time not created by professional medievalists and who don't have that particular insight into the field.
0: Right, right, thanks for that. But in addition to that as the sort of context of the novel, I'm also interested in the plot, which is based in, uh, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, some of what's going on in reality. In in the real world, there are white supremacists, neo-Nazis and others, who have decided that for them it's a good idea to co-opt some of mm-hmm. the narratives and symbols of the Middle Ages and use that to create a kind of identity for their group, to coalesce the group, to give them something to hold on to. Unfortunately, this identity that they're creating using the Middle Ages is completely wrong. Yes. Uh, it, it tries to present the Middle Ages as an all-white society mm-hmm. as a society that doesn't encounter people of color at all. And it's, of course, that's the agenda of the white supremacists, but people who study the middle ages, professional historians and others know that that's just not the case, that that's absolutely yes. a narrative that they're constructing. And so I was fascinated by that, that story that's going on in real life and thought that it would be a good, um, a good story to present in a, in a fictional setting as a sort of novel um, where the, the good guys, the medievalists are trying to fight the bad guys, the neo-Nazis, and trying to correct this error that takes place in the book, uh, which is an mm-hmm. error like something that's happening in, in real life. The idea that the Middle Ages is somehow an all white commodity that can be used for whatever purpose you want. That's just absolutely wrong. And that's one of the main themes of, of the story that I'm trying to tell.
1: Yeah, and this is, of course, something that also comes up very frequently on this podcast, because it's also that kind of image of the Middle Ages is one that often does get repeated in popular media. So even if they're not actively trying to perpetuate these white nationalist ideologies, they are at perhaps unwittingly giving credence to them by insisting that, oh, no, of course, if we're making a movie about the Middle Ages, we can only have white characters. We can generally also only have Christian characters. The women are usually damsels in distress, et cetera.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I think that two things are going on there. One is that there's institutional racism and the people that are mm-hmm. making these movies are just oblivious to what's going on. I think the other part is that, they, that they're not experts on medieval culture, that they that they rarely uh, consult with historians. Some, I think some yes. good movies do that more and more, um, but there are many of them that, that don't, that they've got some idea of the story they want to tell. And as you say, unwittingly are playing into this all white medieval idea that's promoted by the white supremacists. So it's laziness, mm-hmm. I think, uh, on oh, yeah. on some level that they that they either don't want to do the research themselves or they don't want to hire somebody who's done the research mm-hmm. to help them portray something that's that's much more complex and mm-hmm. much makes the stories much harder to tell. Very easy to tell stories with good guys and bad guys, and the bad guys mm-hmm. all hats, they're easily identified. And the white guys are all white, and they're the mm-hmm. animals,
1: so. And we very rarely get away from that. We've already touched on some of the inspirations, right, in terms of these real life issues for as being one of the inspirations for your novel. So, why do you think that medievalists, but also people in general, should care about this, about neo Nazis and white nationalists appropriating medieval symbols? Why is this something that, as I said, both medievalists and the general population should should think matters? Right. Uh,
0: yeah, that's a great question. Why, why should anybody care? At, at the first glance, if you think about this, I tell somebody that uh, neo-Nazis are dressing up uh, using medieval shields and medieval symbols mm-hmm. and dressing up in you know, pseudo-medieval armor or whatever their version of that is. And you might say, if you're an ordinary person, w- well, who cares? I mean, the neo-Nazis are dressing up like they're going to the Renaissance Festival or something like that, and it's, mm-hmm. it, seems sort of, it seems sort of silly, but what do I care? Another piece of this is that medieval historians are trying to fight against that. And you might Mm -hmm. say, well, why do I care about that? Um, First of all, I think that for the general population that doesn't think about it very much, medieval studies and medieval history seem sort of frivolous. It happened a long time ago. It doesn't really impact anything that that's going on now. Why are they sort of worried about the neo-Nazis doing this? Who who cares if the neo-Nazis are doing this? It doesn't really change anything in terms of medieval history, if that's where you're at. And I think both of these attitudes are problematic. First of all, I mentioned before that the the neo-Nazis are trying to create a sort of origin story for themselves, a kind of Mm -hmm. identity myth. And the stronger that is, the more they believe in that, the stronger their group becomes. And Mm -hmm. in this case that they're using material that that you and I study, that medievalists study, to create that myth, that's very problematic because then, Mm -hmm. just as one example you stand up in the classroom and start to talk about uh, the Viking era. And Mm -hmm. it suddenly sounds like you're promoting white supremacy. Uh Uh, You're not very careful to say something uh, against that at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. That's a problem just to try to stop the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists from doing this. And it's quite serious because the stronger Mm -hmm. forces get, the stronger, the more they're able to coalesce. And we all know in, in lots of different cultures, having a, foundation myth and original mm-hmm. uh, story about your origins those are things that make a group stronger so that's a problem as far as the medievalists the medieval historians getting upset about this people can say well you know medieval historians they're getting upset but but who cares i mean and in fact who cares what medieval historians are doing they're not curing cancer they're not solving the national debt um, this is a sort of frivolous extra thing that you might study, and it you know, might be quite interesting and quite fun, but it's not as serious as a lot of other things that professors might do or that, that intellectuals might do in the world. It's sort of on the periphery. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's frivolous is sort of the best word that I think. I think lots of people have that attitude. And in fact, you and I know that there are all sorts of things that yes. come directly from the Middle Ages that affect mm-hmm. the culture that we have today. Absolutely. Uh, things like, things that are in the economy, in, in the learning institutions that we have, in the kinds of governments that we have, and in the attitudes that we have, in particular uh, about race and white supremacy. There are all mm-hmm. sorts of direct links. If we know the sources of these, we can understand better understand our own world, uh, the world in which we live. So that being said, now it suddenly makes more sense that medievalists mm-hmm. need a story to be told correctly and not featured yes. or not uh, adapted, not co-opted, not an mm-hmm. entire fantasy that just supports somebody's idea about what the world should be. There's a real idea about what the world is, and medievalists are part of, um, one part of contributing to that picture of what the world is like.
1: Yeah, and I think especially important to keep in mind, just in terms of thinking about the potential impact of this sort of thing, that this does not start, of course, and you touch on this in the novel, this does not start with the neo-Nazis. This uh, is something that the uh, the original Nazis were also doing. They were very interested in and invested in the Middle Ages.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating that, that people, and, and, and all sorts of people do this, right? All sorts of people mm-hmm. do this to promote themselves, to promote their people. And we have one, just as one example of this in America, people who say, well, I came over on the Mayflower. Yeah. Right. Another way of of identifying yourself as something special. uh, That also has a sort of um, somewhat white supremacist agenda to it, although we don't really think Mm of it all, all the time. So it's a thing that people do to use the past to promote themselves and their people and their agenda. Lots of people do that. But you're right that the original Nazis starting with Hitler and even a little bit before that are used in the middle ages and are using history to promote their agenda. And a great example of this is uh, the swastika. Mm-hmm. People today, if you show them a swastika, they cannot not think about yeah. the Nazis and how that is a Nazi symbol. But the swastika first came into sort of modern consciousness when an archaeologist, a guy named uh, Hermann Schliemann, came into to excavate at Troy, and he found lots of pot shards all over the place, and all of the pot shards had the swastika on it. Mm -hmm. This became a very famous sort of archaeological find. And suddenly the symbol of the swastika, which in lots of cultures all over the world, is a symbol for the sun, is a symbol for rebirth, Mm -hmm. for all sorts of good things. Suddenly everybody wants, wants to use the swastika. Uh, right. All over the world, this is being used to represent organizations. Coca-Cola uses the swastika mm-hmm. advertisements. The Boy Scouts use the swastika. Mm-hmm. Some American military groups use the swastika. And then what happens is the Nazis get a hold of the swastika, and Goebbels, the propaganda minister of Hitler, uh, has this idea to trademark the swastika, to make it illegal, in Germany at least, for anybody else to use the swastika. Mm-hmm. That's how you know that they really are owning this symbol, maybe the symbol of their movement. And suddenly it becomes not a symbol of, of hope or rebirth or all these other mm-hmm. things originally meant. It becomes a symbol of evil. And there are also mm-hmm. examples beyond the swastika, all sorts of moments when the Germanic wing of the Nazi party is very interested in their history in making their history great. There are lots of books that mm-hmm. are written. There's a great book about a king named Frederick II uh, mm-hmm. who was very, very much into promoting a kind of nationalism, although in the Middle Ages they wouldn't have used that word necessarily, promoting the idea that the German people are better than other people. Frederick II is also a person who has the Jews in his community identify themselves mm-hmm. with special markings on their clothing. When this book comes out, before World War, just before World War II, the edition that comes out has a swastika on it. Mm-hmm. It promotes all sorts of ideas that Hitler likes. And Hitler actually loves this book. Goebbels loves the book. They give they give copies of the book to Mussolini. Mm-hmm. And it's a book that they see as, oh, this is the origins of us. This is the origins of our great master race. And it only becomes problematic when they realize the guy who wrote the book, the historian is actually a Jew. Uh-huh. And then they suddenly, you know, well, they still kind of like the book, but they still, you know, send his mother to a concentration camp. Right. He still has to exit the country uh, very quickly. Yeah, so it's a very, it's a complicated story. And this use of, to get back to your original question, the use of these symbols by the neo-Nazis is not a new thing. The original Nazis mm-hmm. do that. And in fact, lots of cultures around the world do that.
1: Yeah, I mean the swastika certainly is this example, right? Where in a lot of ways they they won. Certainly, I can say, you know, I as a Jew, I can't see the swastika and think anything else, right? That that is has dominated the symbolism. Yeah, but I think also, you know, we really are seeing as well, I'll note that we are very much, I think, at this moment where battles over history and how history is taught at the college level, but perhaps even to a greater extent at the you know primary and secondary level, that these battles are incredibly important in the United States right now. And for example, looking at things like the bans on critical race theory, most of the conversations have been in particular, how this affects things like the teaching of slavery in the United States, but there are absolutely things that can come up in the context of teaching the medieval past as well.
0: Yeah, I think I think there's absolutely, there are links between these various parts of history and the fact that they are contested by some groups, that they're challenged by some groups. What can you teach and what can you not teach? That is absolutely, I, in my mind, not different at all from... Mm-hmm. Uh, teaching medieval history or uh, early American history. And I think that the, the reasons that those conflicts come up are also linked, that I think that they're very much connected to, to racism and some sort mm-hmm. of fear of the other, right? That these are driven by yeah. white, uh, white folks, for the most part, uh, who, don't even, who would never say, I'm a white supremacist but they just don't want those those difficult topics to be taught. They say mm-hmm. that's, in the nicest way that they want to protect their children um, uh-huh. by t- teaching myths about early American mm-hmm. history. And, and it's just absolute rubbish and is absolutely, I think, has direct links to the teaching of using medievalism as a, as a way to promote a certain version of medieval history. It's connected to the people who don't want to teach critical race theory and, and other mm-hmm. topics like that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, they're making the choice, right, about which children they want to protect, that what they need is they want to protect white children from having to grapple with this history, when the reality is that in terms of, you know, the reality of institutional racism is, of course, something that growing up, children of color don't have the luxury of deciding whether or not they have to confront and grapple with this.
0: Right, right. I'm actually, I, mean, I don't know if I sh- should be uh, ashamed, maybe I'm a little bit ashamed, but I'm also... Originally, I was astonished that there's so many parts of early American history that I didn't know mm-hmm. um, because I went to a school um, in the you know elementary school in the '60s and '70s in Texas, where, for example, Juneteenth is never taught. Yeah, it's great yeah, of liberation for Black folks. And when I learned about that as a pretty old adult, uh, mm-hmm. I was just stunned, and I'd grown up yeah. in it. Where this mm-hmm. originates. So, there are all sorts of moments like that 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 uh, are the, the legacy of America, mm-hmm. the legacy of what we've taught our children in America. And I just, if there was some way to just say, you know, the truth is not a bad thing to teach. And mm-hmm. you can teach the truth in age appropriate ways at all levels. But I don't think you should make something up to fool the children or to make them feel better mm-hmm. in whatever sense. I think that's a very wrong headed attitude. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Yeah, and the the Tulsa riot, the Tulsa massacre, is another really interesting example of that. That it's something that I learned about on a visit to the Memphis Civil Rights Museum of you know the city where I now live, and uh, my parents learned about this from the TV show Watchmen.
0: And me too, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's um, it's scary that a lot of the history and and real news that we're getting comes from comic books and and mm-hmm. uh, news shows like the Daily Show. Or something like that that you, you have I I have more faith in news and history that's presented there than in lost. Mm-hmm. So a little bit scary to think about that.
1: Yeah, but of course raises a lot of additional questions about uh, our about you know people's responsibility as educators and as in your case as media creators. With that, I wanted to kind of lead into, you represent a couple of interesting intellectual debates in your novels. So that one that really stuck out to me is the conversation between professors Stark and Kentarovich, which is essentially about whether or not scholars can be activists. And then later as well, a debate between our, I would say probably our main characters, the two graduate students, Quint and Isaacson, about freedom of speech, the value of reason in combating hatred and bigotry. So I was wondering where where do you fall in these debates in terms of, you know, what do you think our responsibilities are? What do you think the relationship is between scholarship and activism? How should we deal with these kinds of things coming up on campuses?
0: Yeah. Well, you're you're putting me on the spot and and asking and <laughs> so I'm going to uh, divert the conversation and actually that's read understood. It you if that's okay. And it's part of it's part of this first conversation that you were talking about about whether whether scholars should remain scholars or whether scholars should be activists at all or sometimes. And let me just set up this scene for you. One of the uh, characters, Professor Stark, has just been named a Sterling professor at Yale. The whole novel, most of the novel takes place on the Yale campus. And the Sterling professorship is a great honor. It's a real thing that that real professors in real life get. And once she's been named to this professorship, she's asked to give a sort of inaugural lecture. So I'm going to read mm-hmm. from that. I think it picks up on some of the themes that you're talking about. Stark delivers the Sterling lecture. Good evening. Thank you, Madam Provost, for that very warm introduction. Thanks also to Yale's president, the Board of Regents, the Alumni Association, my colleagues in the Department of History, my students, grad and undergrad, and to all of you for being here tonight. It's a great honor to offer this inaugural lecture as Yale's newest Sterling professor. I believe it was David Lodge, the great satirist of academia, who said that American scholars always begin their papers with a joke. Uh, I don't have a joke for you tonight, but I thought we could start with this cartoon from the New Yorker. We see one figure seated with a notepad behind a couch where the other figure is lying down and we immediately recognize the cartoon genre of the therapy session. The patient is a white man in a tweedy sports coat, elbows patched with a well-trimmed beard and wire-rimmed glasses, tropes that make him instantly recognizable as a professor. We could spend the whole evening dissecting this gendered representation, but I'll focus on the caption instead, which reveals that this is, in fact, a history professor, and which so masterfully contains the theme of my talk. A history professor then on the couch talking to his shrink. Here's what he says, quote, those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. But those who do study history are doomed to stand by helplessly while everyone else repeats it. it this is actually a bit long for a New Yorker caption, but we can forgive this I think once we realize everything that's at stake. The caption needs the opening clause with the full quotation from George Santayana, so familiar to us all. Those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. You may not know this, but Santayana's actual quotation was those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I'm thinking some history teachers amended the quote to encourage their students in the discipline. Either way, Santayana's words offer hope. Without saying as much, he promises that if people would only do so much as study history, then the human race actually would not end up repeating it. One presumes that the history Santayana hopes we will avoid is all the bad stuff, war, poverty, oppression. Surely he would find it okay if humans repeated the good stuff, acts of charity and kindness, the spread of brotherly and sisterly love, universal health care and student loan forgiveness. No, it's quite clear to us what Santayana means, not the least because his quotation is so overused as to become cliche. The comic turn in the caption, the surprise comes in the subordinate clause which offers the historian in the cartoon and indeed all historians, the cold slap in the face that is the reality of our profession. Those who do study history are doomed to stand by helplessly while everyone else repeats it, ouch. I'm certain that each of you, professors and students and lovers of history, has had at least one moment in your lives where past events so clearly resonate in the present that we don't stand on the sidelines astonished that those around us don't see the similarities between then and now. Don't you know that internment of minorities has happened before we cry out? Don't you know where such policies led in the past? Don't you remember that demagogues of the past exploiting people's fears have led us to fascism. Can't you see that is happening again? Our times, perhaps all times, are rife with such moments. Historians who know about human behavior in the past because they've studied it deeply, are rightly frightened, outraged, and exasperated when our fellow humans fail to see what we see. We feel doomed to stand by helplessly while our fellow humans allow the bad stuff of the past to happen again and again what can we do? It's very tempting, especially for our younger colleagues and our graduate and undergraduate students, to be drawn to activism, to see the intellectual training you've received as historians as preparing you to change the world. Let me lay my thesis out very plainly, don't do it. The simple version of my thesis is that you must avoid mixing scholarship with activism, that such mingling of discipline with passion can only lead to disappointing results. But like many theses, this one is more complicated and I hope you will stick with me as I lay out my argument. I offer three reasons for why I urge you not to mix historical scholarship with activism. They are ambiguity, presentism, and contingency. Let me speak to each of them in turn. First, ambiguity. By ambiguity, I mean the conflicted feeling that will live in the scholarly audience when scholarship mixes with activism and vice versa. Don't think for a minute that historians do not cultivate audiences. Historians need audiences for their work just as activists do. But when historians apply their methods to contemporary problems, it creates a conflicted feeling in both audiences for scholarship comes to be seen as advocacy, which diminishes its power as pure unbiased argument. An historian should never be an activist because it diminishes his work as a historian. So that's a section in the book that, that mm-hmm. introduces this idea that, that there are you know, two paths that historians might take. You might take the uh, path of pure historian, pure academic, or you might use those skills to move into activism. And I think in reality, um, many historians can do a little bit of both, can mix this without much danger. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to present this as more or less an either or argument and then make that more complex as the, Mm -hmm. as the talk goes along. So as this talk that professor Stark is giving continues, she gives lots of examples of, of real life, historical historians uh, who in their days have tried to do activism and failed miserably. And Mm -hmm. I've I've sort of set out uh, one of the authorial, some, some, creative license that I've taken is that I've let uh, Professor Stark do her graduate work with a real historian, a guy who was also involved with uh, the CIA, who was a consultant mm-hmm. as a medievalist with the CIA. And when people would ask, how, how can that be that a medievalist is working on this? Yeah, that seems pretty crazy. And he would say, well, medievalists do one thing, really. They pull together different pieces of the puzzle and try to make a cohesive picture out of that. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to do with the CIA when they're trying to gather intelligence that's what medievalists do and he sort of justified that and this this uh, historian this historian was involved with the CIA when they're doing all sorts of horrible things uh, invading other countries right. toppling presidents fixing elections but he saw this as a sort of patriotic activism on his part
2: mm-hmm. but
0: stark in her lecture says no no I mean this is we know now that this is horrible that we really can't stand mm-hmm. by it and it diminishes, the guy's name is Joseph Strayer, it diminishes Strayer's reputation as a historian mm-hmm. because he's involved in this way. So that she continues that argument in her speech, talking with very specific examples to try to make the case, do not become an activist. Then during the question and answer period, in the, in the next little chapter of the book, the other main professor in the story, Kantorovich, Abe Kantorovich is the sort of protagonist, the leader of these students who are going to take action. He stands up and, he's, and Stark says, are there any questions? And he does that fantastic typical thing that everyone has seen if you've been to an academic conference. Oh, yes. She says, are there any questions? And he immediately starts not asking a question, but giving a very prolonged comment that never really evolves into a question. But his long comment is all about, wait a minute, we really should become activists. And this is very important. And he then gives lots of examples uh, from history where historians and medievalists in particular have been activists. He tells the story of uh, one of my heroes, uh, Mark Bloch, who wrote Mm -hmm. a still-used textbook called The Historian's Craft. He wrote this Mm -hmm. book when he was in a concentration camp. And Mark Bloch lived at the time of World War II and when France was occupied. He worked with the resistance and he was found out and captured and died in a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. Before he did that, he wrote this, you know, thin but very meaningful, powerful book about what historians do. So there's an example that that uses and says, here, you know, look at this guy. He's an actor, mm-hmm. and he's a he's a hero to all medievalists. And he sort of closes the argument by using this. There's a famous um, Howard Zinn quote. Uh, Howard Zinn is an American historian, but he's very, he writes the popular history of the United States, writes history from the bottom of, as absolutely an activist, was involved in uh, trying to stop the Vietnam War and, and things like that. And Howard Zinn has this famous line where he says, and it's, I think it's the uh, title of his autobiography, you can't be neutral on a moving train. And that sort of closes the debate, at least as far as the, uh, the novel is concerned. But it's very, I think, dynamic and dramatic, and you get these two people that are passionately arguing on either side. And mm-hmm. as, the, as the storyteller, as the novelist who wanted to present this idea, I felt like I had to have characters who were passionate but very well-informed. I mean, they, give, they mm-hmm. give arguments on either side. And yeah, it's my hope that you, know, you finish hearing Stark's speech and you go, oh, yeah, right, we shouldn't do that because she's so compelling and convincing in her argument and mm-hmm. so good with her evidence. and then you turn around and you hear uh, Kantorovich give his rebuttal and then you go, oh, I guess we should be activists right? mm-hmm. So that's my hope to have that impact on the on the reader. but you're asking me where do I fall in all of this um, And so I feel like I'm not I'm not allowed to have that sort of neutral well I'm just a storyteller and I'm uh-huh. not. Know- Dance. I'm trying to be, you know, neutral, um, and, and fair, and balanced would be another, you know, awful way to say that. But I think it it should be obvious by the end of the book uh, mm-hmm. that I fall on the stance that scholars should be activists mm-hmm. uh, because they do, in fact, take action. Kantorovich uh, invites these two students uh, to join him in fighting the the neo Nazis, and I won't say too much about how that happens to avoid spoilers in the book. But they they do more than just give talks. They do more than just write articles. They are very mm-hmm. much active in your face, yes. working against the uh, antagonists in the book, the neo-Nazi groups that are co-opting medieval symbols. So I think that that maybe reveals my hand a little bit, mm-hmm. that I would, I would favor you know, the activist part. And, and I would think, yeah. you know, in, in reality, I think how can you sort of live in the world and not care mm-hmm. enough? to take some sort of action. Uh, It seems Mm -hmm. very, it makes me feel despondent that there might be people Mm -hmm. that, that, that do that, so...
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also that, you know, it is interesting to think about the ways, and this is something I actually talk to my students about all the time, the way in which not all scholarship is activism per se, but I do think all scholarship uh, in the humanities is political in some ways, in terms of, you know, the fact that it all comes out of our perspectives and our biases and the kinds of questions that we choose to ask. The fact that for many, many years, most scholarship was white men writing about powerful white men That's political. So I'm not going to say that my choice to mostly write about women and to kind of center questions of gender and and to center the identities of marginalized people, a lot of my work is on Jewish women in particular, I'm not going to say that that's not political, but I also think that the, as I said, that the many, many years of work on, you know, here are a bunch of kings and popes was also political.
0: Absolutely. And the difference, the change that has come, maybe since the 1960s, when you started to get more women historians, when you started mm-hmm. more historians of color and from marginalized groups, as you say, the difference is that they would name the thing. And you mm-hmm. say, well, you write about Jewish women and that's political. You're a Jewish woman and and you're not trying to pretend that it's not. And mm-hmm. I think that the danger and the sort of great failing of history that came before those that time mm-hmm. Was that it's mostly white men doing that history, writing history of white men, and they're presenting it as if it is the unbiased, unvarnished truth, as if this is not Mm -hmm. coming from some bias that they have. Right. Um, And now it's very hard for the for the white male historians to get away with that. I mean, you can't sort of, and some some still try, but I think that that uh, the the overwhelming voice that is one is the voice that says let's just be honest about what's going on. Mm-hmm. We, we all come to this from a perspective, from a point of view, and let's put that out there at the very beginning and then be aware of that, right? And that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're going to lie about what happened or that you're going to make something up or that you're going to be so biased that the, that the history that you're telling is useless because you're going to want to present fair arguments from both sides, even if you are trying to hold up populations and histories that have not traditionally been told as often as they as they might have been. So mm-hmm. it's very it's it's complicated, but I think it's much it's much better now. And I think the white male historians are on notice that you can't just get away with saying, yep. well here's this is this is the real history. And that Mm -hmm. other stuff is, yeah, maybe it's interesting, but it's sort of on the periphery. Mm -hmm. I would never center, as you say, center a group of people like Jewish women and and tell the whole history of the world from the point of view of Jewish women. But lots of historians are trying to do that, and they say, why the hell not? Uh, Mm -hmm. It's it's no better or worse than centering everything about the actions. Uh, in history around the actions of white men. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, I do think that there's been a turn in uh, in how history is written and the expectations we have of history, um, and I think for the better. So,
1: mm-hmm. And in your novel, we see a lot about the about the discipline of history, as well as the kind of particular conflicts and challenges that we see within medieval studies, right? So that there are conversations that happen around, you know, the the realities of mansplaining and the, you know, comment rather than a question, which, you know, does come from, you know, a man speaking to a woman at in a conference setting, which is something I have seen and been on that end of many times. <laughs> And also then on the, you know, perhaps kind of like bigger and more dramatic, and you talk about the, uh, the group medievalists of color and the critiques that they leveled against ICMS Kalamazoo and the kind of choices they made about which panels ended up getting approved and kind of charges being made that the panels being organized about race by scholars of color were much less likely to be approved than other kinds of panels and even by uh, panels about race, but that were organized by white scholars. Right. So, why did you think that it was important to to bring in these internal tensions and offer also a story, right, that's ultimately more complicated than "here are the you know progressive medievalists versus the neo Nazis"? Why did you think that including these uh, these tensions within the field and between people who probably all see themselves at least as being progressive and at least not certainly not white supremacists right. uh, in this story?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess the, the simple answer is, I am a great fan of irony. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you look at the whole story of what's going on in medieval studies now, one part of it is this part that, that is the, maybe the main thread of the novel, that medievalists, medieval historians are fighting the neo-Nazis. And in that sense, it's a very anti-racist book. And you can clearly see that the medievalists who are fighting against the neo-Nazis are the good guys. They're the heroes of the story, but they're also complicated characters. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the characters is a black uh, grad student who's a little bit older. Quint is his name. And Molly, the younger grad student, is a white woman. And she appears on the campus and is, you know, very excited to be at Yale. But she ends up studying. She ends up uh, sharing a study carol with Quint, which she didn't realize was going to happen. And when he shows up, she looks at him and she said, well, you're a medievalist, really? But, but you're black. Mm-hmm. And then so there's immediately there's a sort of, Attitude that's presented that I think has happened. I'm, I'm yes. sure it's happened to many uh, medieval scholars of color that people are surprised by that. The people automatically mm-hmm. uh, it's a European area of study, uh, which it's not. But you would expect mm-hmm. people descended from Europeans to be the ones studying that. So that's that's one piece of it that makes makes it very complicated. And the other piece you mentioned the Medievals of color, which is a real organization that has had real seat yes. of of the larger. Medievalist clan, and they have said, you know, pointed out that when we try to get papers accepted to this conference, there's a much lower percentage of the papers Mm -hmm. from scholars of color than from the white scholars, and the topics are much uh, lower percentage of topics about histories of people of color than the white histories of people, Mm -hmm. white folks. So they've really pointed this out, and I thought, well. I want to have an anti-racist novel, but I want the characters to be complex. And in fact, mm-hmm. it, that was made easy for me because the characters in real life are complex. Yeah, uh, There's this real argument going on between the medievalists of color and other, um, I would say, allies of theirs who, who feel the same way and the establishment of medieval studies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and even the, you know, the establishment of medieval studies in America is very much like a lot of things the story of America that it's mm-hmm. dominated by white dudes in the beginning mm-hmm. and the funniest story that i just love uh, to uh, love listening to and love hearing it is that the the very prestigious uh, journal that the earliest medieval association created the me- medieval medieval association of America created a journal a scholarly journal that is still you know the, the flagship of you know the best medieval journal that you can be in many people Mm -hmm. and it's the title the name of the journal is speculum Mm -hmm. and i try to imagine okay speculum is just a latin word it means mirror and Mm -hmm. in these all these white dudes who are coming around and trying to think of a good name for their new journal might say, well speculum that means mirror and our journal is going to be a mirror on the past, or how the past reflects on the present, or you know, they probably had great ideas for how "speculum" was the perfect name for their journal. I don't think any of them went home and asked their wives, you know, what uh-huh. because then they would have said, "Wait, you know, that's a tool of gynecology, and you know, that's mm-hmm. that has a very different meaning for women scholars." But I, I have, in my imagination, no women scholars around when they were mm-hmm. doing that. so. Right? Okay, so that's an example of. How sort of innocent white male uh, dominance, <laughs> you know, creates a sort of comic effect, and there, are, you know, many other examples of this. So I think to get back to your question, why is this in the book? It's in the book because the medieval environment, the, the medieval stratosphere of all the different kinds of people in there, is full of irony, and I think mm-hmm. that people who would say well, I'm not a neo-Nazi and I hate the fact that neo-Nazis are using medieval symbols. Some of those people are going to turn right around and go to a conference and say, mm-hmm. well, these are the good papers, all the ones that are traditional. These are the papers that are sort of on the fringe, papers that maybe read documents in a different way, papers that maybe don't even use documents as evidence. And we can't really have that at our prestigious mm-hmm. conference. And as it turns out, those are the pa- papers that are written by women and people of color. And I think the Mm -hmm. same, the same things happen in terms of institutional racism, where hiring is concerned, whether Mm -hmm. it's people of color, where decisions about promotion and tenure Mm -hmm. uh, have all sorts of institutional racism that's reflected. And that is a problem. And so I wanted to make, you know, in the same way that I think any, any good story that has a hero makes the hero complex in some way. Mm -hmm. He has a, a, you know, all sorts of problems He's a bad husband. He's a bad father. He's an alcoholic. He's, you know, no hero Mm -hmm. is purely like, and even, even when you read Superman comics today, Superman is not as pure as he was when he was, you know, first introduced. So to make the heroes complex, to make a more complex story, to make a a story that's full of irony, while it's also trying to be an anti-racist, anti-racist story, that was important to me to include all of that. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course that, You know, it is very much the case that as, of you know, in terms of a crop of graduate students, right, working today, uh, thinking about my own experiences, having finished graduate school about five years ago at this point, graduate students are an increasingly diverse group of people, even in medieval studies, but that often we are then mentored by people who might be absolutely excellent mentors. And I certainly don't have any complaints about my own, but that are mostly white men, that the diversity of the people teaching at elite institutions uh, still does not reflect the diversity of their students, either undergraduate or graduate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for for myself, I mean, I've I've mentioned a couple of times, this is not a visual medium that we're working in with your podcast, but I (laughs) will say again, I'm a white dude. And when I was in graduate school, I was taught, I had a fantastic advisor at Ohio State uh, who was another white dude. And Mm -hmm. he was fantastic in every way, but every once in a while, even though my own consciousness had not been raised that much when I was mm-hmm. in school, I started in 93 and finished in 2000. I would hear things every once in a while where he'd say, well, we don't need to talk about race in the middle ages because race is a construct from the 19th century and ah. they would have used the term race. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some, some part of me would be kind of questioning that, like, uh, but are mm-hmm. saying that there are, you know, we know that there are, um, Saracens, quote unquote, right? And the mm-hmm. Western European people meet meet darker-skinned people. Uh, if mm-hmm. it's only in the battle, of, in, in the middle of battles, or in the middle of occupying their countries, but they don't have any idea about race. This was my advisor's uh, mm-hmm. note. Part of that, part of me would be sort of upset by that. Part of me, the way that I think many grad students respond, and the way that certainly the grad students in this novel respond, they're nervous about challenging. Their yeah. Race. And mm-hmm. if he says this is a term that didn't exist because it's made up in the 19th century. Who am I? I you know, and, mm-hmm. and I also, like I'm I'm going to need him at some point to write me a fantastic mm-hmm. letter to get a fantastic job. So there's also uh-huh. self interest in not pushing back against that. And mm-hmm. I think that one of the benefits uh, that's that's happened more recently in in graduate programs is. First of all, there are more and maybe still not enough, but there are more professors of color. There's more theory about mm-hmm. uh, things that, that push back in, against the white male agenda as, as mm-hmm. uh, sort of passively as it might be presented. So there's there's more mm-hmm. theory, there's more studies, there are more people that specialize in that kind of study and there're more as you say more uh, women and and students of color in graduate programs. Mm-hmm. So it allows this and it allows practices and theories to flourish more and actually mm-hmm. teach all of us much more about everything that was happening in the middle ages that it wasn't this sort of monolithic yeah. one thing only. But you're right about the, the program that you're in and the professor that you have makes makes a huge difference. And I was yeah. I don't want to say I was a victim of that, but I was I, I was part of that. And mm-hmm. partly I, I sort of struggled against that. And partly I just accepted it because that's what mm-hmm. what he uh, what he told me. He's mm-hmm. he got a Ph.D. from Harvard. I mean, <laughs> he must know. Uh, <laughs> But it's completely his his bias, and as, as mm-hmm. everybody said, people often in those days, the white men didn't they didn't have a bias, they just knew the mm-hmm. truth as they had, had right. and learned it so yeah it's uh, it's complicated and I'm, I'm hoping that that complication is interesting to readers that, that, that I'm trying to present something that is that is real. there is nobody i don't think there's any character in this book who is absolutely on a white horse with a white hat mm-hmm. They're all complicated and they've all got flaws. Yeah. And that includes Mm -hmm. the female graduate student and the black graduate student, and they've all Mm -hmm. got, and that makes them more realistic human characters, Mm -hmm. that they're not just held up as sort of icons of of some idea, but they've got to struggle with their own stuff and Mm -hmm. and try to overcome that to do what they Mm -hmm. hope is right. So...
1: Yeah. And, and that's, I think, also a kind of good lead into, I also wanted to ask you if you would share a little bit about some of the the inspirations behind your central characters. And I'd also love to hear as well about how you handled, uh, in particular, writing diverse characters, right? That, uh, you know, as you've mentioned, uh, you are a white man, right? And so in t- two of your protagonists or your main two protagonists are a Black man and a white Jewish woman. So I was just uh, wondering, kind of, both what are your inspirations in terms of those being the central characters, as well as uh, what kind of things came up for you when, when writing those characters in realistic and complex ways?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think about it now all the time as I think about presenting this book. I'm, I'm about to go on a book tour and give uh, talks and read from the book. And I'm hoping that that will be among a lot of diverse folks in the audience. And I'm sure that they will wonder the same thing. These are really the questions of the day. And you hear about all sorts of conflicts and all sorts of outrage and people being canceled, authors being canceled because they dare to write about um, characters that are not like them, right? And that They are in fact co-opting uh, the culture of somebody that's not like them. And this is, I said, I liked irony, but maybe I don't like it that much because the irony here would be I'm writing a book about people who are co-opting medieval culture and I'm against that. But in some, on some level, I have to ask myself, am I co opting the culture of these folks who are not white folks, right? Who are mm-hmm. or Jewish or women? And that becomes complicated. So, first of all, the, I, I would say the inspiration for all of these stories, I had this idea to write this book long before I retired. It was in the news. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in the New York Times, reported on these episodes where neo Nazis were adopting medieval symbols. And there are some famous examples. In Christchurch, New Zealand, a guy goes in mm-hmm. and murders 50 people with automatic weapons. And on his rifle, he has in in paint, I don't know if it's painted on or if it's etched in, but he has a phrase from the Crusades, mm-hmm. De which means God mm-hmm. built it. And this is horrifying because he thinks that he's recreating something from the past or he's co-opting something from the past. So there are many examples like that. And on some level, there's so much stuff that is... I don't want to say ripped from the headlines, but so much stuff that exists in the real world. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hard. I didn't have to be inspired to make something up. Yeah. Um, a lot of this is really happening. But then I thought, well, it's easy to write this middle-aged professor character who has this idea to fight the neo-Nazis, but I don't want to just have some white dude who's fighting the neo-Nazis. And that, mm-hmm. you know, I think that readers are going to say, oh, that's, that's you, Phil Adamo. And Clearly the white middle-aged professor has to be you. Um and maybe some in some ways he is, and maybe authors always do that, but you know the protagonist is always some part of them, sure, but I wanted to have other people who would have a stake, maybe a bigger stake in this mm-hmm. fight, and that meant diverse characters that meant characters who are confronted with racism all the time, characters who might have some family history of mm-hmm. you know, the Nazis, so I have a Jewish female character, I have a black grad student character, and they are products of my imagination, but I've but I've tried to harness my imagination by using lots of research, by asking mm-hmm. lots of people, by having people read the entire book or sections of the book. And not that you know, if I I don't want to say I I showed the guy to my black friend and he said it was okay. I don't think that anybody represents you know, mm-hmm. the entirety of their population or their group. So it's not that, but I have tried to check in with people and and. Mm-hmm get responses from that. So that's one piece that's going on. On the other hand, I just knew that maybe because I'm a researcher that doing lots of research would be important Mm -hmm. to try to figure out, you know, if I want to write complex characters that are not just two dimensional, Oh, he's got a black guy fighting the neo-Nazis, but nothing, there's nothing else about him. That's Mm -hmm. interesting. That would be a flaw. That would be bad writing. to start. Mm -hmm. And, and it would be feeding into all the accusations that the many people, some of them rightly have about all mm-hmm. writing characters that are not of their own group. So one place, I'll give you an, a great example of a place that was very helpful to me in writing the book in terms of um, doing research. There's a website, a blog called Writing with Color.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Writing with Color is a blog that's run by, I don't know, eight or ten women uh, women of color, but of all different stripes, some lesbians of color, some biracial uh, writers, uh, but it's all women who do this. And you can go there and lots of questions have already been asked. It's a very full website with mm-hmm. topics and access. And if you ask some question, if you send them an email and say, I want to know about this, they will immediately write you back and say, dude, do your own research. We we answered that question uh-huh. months ago. Just look Do a little research. Look it up. It's right here. But we're not going to wait for your email. Mm -hmm. So they have this, I think, fantastic, on the one hand, very direct attitude about what they're doing. And also, Mm -hmm. I would say, a very generous attitude. So uh, let me give you a couple of examples of of what I learned and what writers can learn at the Writing for Color website. You want to describe your characters physically. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems is... If I have white characters, I don't need to describe them because I'm one of them, right? This mm-hmm. is the attitude you have in your head. And I had to like I had to be jolted out of that mentality. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to describe what characters look, look like physically, all of them need to be described. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the characters of color. Mm-hmm. When describing the characters of color, you want to be very careful what adjectives do you use. Mm-hmm. So it's very typical, very common problem that writers will say, this black character had skin the color of dark coffee or mm-hmm. skin the color of chocolate. And writers do this all the time. And yeah. according to this website, and I think it makes perfect sense, those words, those adjectives are connected to colonialism and slavery mm-hmm. and, and coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, come on, and we're using those words to describe the black characters. Mm-hmm. So you point out what you should not do, and then they tell you and give you a long list of the things that you ought to do. Um, mm-hmm. and even I think on this one particular page of the website, they have several pictures uh, in a row of famous black actors and they, and their skin tone changes from very dark to very light skinned black people. And then they'll have adjectives that you can use instead of coffee and chocolate, uh, you could use just regular real color words like mm-hmm. uh, tawny is a, is a color word that they suggest for describing certain kinds of people. And the word tawny is next to a black person who they would say is a tawny colored person. Mm -hmm. So very practical advice on what to do. And then uh, there's another uh, level of their website that is very um, philosophical and theoretical. And so they point out various tropes that are common in writing about uh, people of color, and so things like the magical Negro, the the black right. friend who's all who's not really in the story, even except to right. help the white character. So they say, well, that's not really you know. To try not to do that, and mm-hmm. uh, and then the um, the white savior character. You don't want to do that because you know that all of this marginalizes the characters of color, mm-hmm. raises up the white characters, and if you got if you got both of them in there. On some level, you want to be, you want all of them to be treated fairly, um, whether Mm -hmm. they are main characters or not. So anyway, writer that's out there that wants to uh, write characters of color, I would recommend this website. And the last thing I'll say about it is they are very generous with all the flaws that you can anticipate from white Mm -hmm. authors trying to do this. And one of them, Mm -hmm. a couple of places on the website, they say, you're going to mess up. Mm -hmm. You're going to do a bad job at this. Okay. Get over it. Try again. Mm-hmm. People are not going to like what you did. Even if you, you know, followed all these rules we're putting out, even if you did your best, some people are still going to hate it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Carry on, you know, don't not do this. Their point is if you're going to have a, a story that is anti-racist, if you're going to have a story with honest, complex, diverse characters, you, you can't don't, don't stop yourself from doing that. That is worth the effort mm-hmm. to try to do. Um, if you want your story to really reflect honestly the way the world is, mm-hmm. um, it would be a very different book, I think, if if there were only white characters fighting the yeah. white supremacists. I think don't, I don't think it would mm-hmm. be as rich. And so I, again, you know, I've I've tried my best to represent these characters. Some people are going to like it, and some people are not going to like it. And there's there's nothing I can do except to say I did my best. I'm trying to do mm-hmm. better next time. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, you know, having having a story about white supremacists that then centers all white people, right, is, of course, something that, rightfully so, would also come in, certainly, for, for critique, so.
0: Right, absolutely.
1: Yeah. This question is perhaps a, uh, a selfish one to ask, but uh, because I was, in fact, a graduate student in medieval history at Yale, Good. I do have to ask, why Yale? What about Yale as an institution Something as it's kind of represented culturally made it for you uh, a particularly apt setting for much of the novel.
0: So I think if you're if you're dealing with a story about white supremacy, and this is not to diss. I mean, I think Yale is a fantastic university. It has all <laughs> sorts of positive things. That you oh, have-
1: you can feel free to diss Yale in front but, of me. That's fine. But,
0: <laughs> it does have, like a lot of universities, mm-hmm. it does have a history of racism and white supremacy. So mm-hmm. and it's privilege. It's a place of privilege. That might not, you know, for a long time, didn't think it had to deal with these issues. That would be great if that were the only reason. And I would, I, you might think, oh, he's, you know, very philosophically sophisticated to choose Yale for that reason. But the real reason is much more lame and and uh, utilitarian. One of the main pieces of the novel deals with a manuscript called the Voynich Manuscript. Mm-hmm. And it's very well known. Uh, It's a weird manuscript that has all sorts of fantastical, almost Dr. Seuss like illustrations in it. Some of them are botanical, some of them are astronomical. um, And uh, with these illustrations that are already sort of fantastic and unbelievable, there's a text that goes with this, but the text is written in a handwriting that nobody can read in a language that Mm -hmm. nobody knows. And this makes the book tremendously mysterious and interesting. And people have tried. To uh, decipher this, even, even famous people like uh, Alan Turing, right, who mm-hmm. on the um, Enigma code against the Nazis, he tried to decode it and couldn't do it. And other famous decoders uh, uh, and cryptologists tried to do this. And to date, nobody has really figured out what it says. Mm-hmm. And this book, which is a real book, a real manuscript, lives in the library at Yale, so once I had sort of decided I wanted to use the Voynich manuscript as one of the elements of the plot, and there was mm-hmm. an really important part in the plot, and the Voynich manuscript is at Yale, I thought, oh, well, I'll just put the whole thing at Yale, and mm-hmm. then my grad student characters and my professor characters will have access to the Voynich manuscript. Mm-hmm. They will travel from Houston to New Haven to look at it. Mm-hmm. You know. So it was a very practical decision uh, as
1: well. Mm-hmm. There, I will say both people who work on the Voynage, people who work on the Beinecke, uh, get a lot of emails as well from uh, maybe not so famous cryptographers uh, from a lot of people who are kind of maybe slightly unhinged and coming up with some very weird theories uh, kind of it's send emails crazy. about this all the time.
0: Yeah, even, even the sort of history of the manuscript is fascinating, sort of where did it come mm-hmm. from? The provenance, right? Who owned it and who sold it to whom and how did it get to the Beinecke library? But the theories... About what it is are just so varied and so crazy. Um, yes. So, so people have said, "Well, it's in Latin." No, it's in Greek. No, it's in Hebrew, written with Arabic characters. No, it's in this language or that language. Uh, it's a, a substitution cipher. So, one letter equals another letter. If you could only figure out how that works, you could just like the little cryptogram in the newspaper. You could figure out what the whole manuscript said. It's that kind of uh, cipher. Mm-hmm. Then people say, well, who wrote it? Oh, well, this is clearly a, a, a story, a, a book that was created by the Mayan Indians. No, no, no. It was created by uh, Jesus, which, and he gave it to Judas as a sort of secret message. No, no, no. It was written by aliens from outer space. And so there's all of this, like, just wacky stuff
2: mm-hmm.
0: around this manuscript that, like, you, you, on some level you want to go, all right, I'm holding this book in my hands. And there have been studies, carbon fourteen and other kind of scientific studies, that can date the age of the parchment that's used. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it clearly comes from a certain time in the in the medieval period. I want to say 13th century, but I'm, I'm now spacing out. So it had to be written sometime after that. Some some people, another fantastic one, is that Francis Bacon, the supposed author of all of the works of William Shakespeare. Francis mm-hmm. Bacon, was a the theater guy, made this as a prop for a play. Now, maybe, but, you know, if you look at this, is a very complicated set of- it's a it. lot of work. It's a lot of work for a prop. <laughs> um, but people have that idea, and, and also partly because of that, the sort of mystery and the goofiness of all of the ideas around the four-inch manuscript, that made it an interesting tool in the story mm-hmm. that- The grad students come up with this idea that they can use the Voynich manuscript to reveal some truth in the story and that 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 truth will be taken up and it will derange the Mm -hmm. neo-Nazis in some way. So,
1: We did, in fact, have classes where we met and worked in the Beinecke uh, during my time at Yale. And as to your other point, I actually was also at Yale during at least part of the time when there was a lot of conversation around the renaming of Calhoun College. So one of the undergraduate colleges at Yale named for John Calhoun, who I think is really mostly known for being both a slave owner and an intense proponent of slavery. That is very much part of Yale's legacy as well, certainly, and uh, something that certainly rings as familiar to those of us who have spent time there.
0: Yeah, it's very complicated. And I have to say, when I being raised in a racist culture as a white dude, when I first started hearing about Civil war statues, for example, being taken mm-hmm. down, being protested or places that people wanted to rename, I and also partly as a historian, but a historian again, trained by other white men, my immediate reaction was, "Well, wait a minute, now this is this is history." And it took a big jolt and you know knock on the mm-hmm. head to say, Yeah, it's part of history. You know, those statues were erected during Reconstruction. They were always erected at times when Black folks were rising up, when Black folks were speaking up for their rights. And a lot in the 1960s,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. So so it's sort of,
0: once you learn that, then you go, oh, take the damn statue down. Mm -hmm. Of course, rename the building because it's all done for their own nefarious purposes to try, Mm -hmm. once again, in a very public way try to oppress black folks while you're standing there saying oh but this is just history there's you know there's and there's nothing political about history we're just on which is just mm-hmm. nonsense which is just bs so yeah but i but i have to say that these are uh, for myself at least i'll speak for myself i think that these awakenings are very personal and happen at different times i didn't yeah i, I you know the the Civil War was called the War of Northern Aggression, where I grew up in Texas. Mm-hmm. And Robert E. Lee was a great hero. And there's a, mm-hmm. high school, a sort of rival high school where I grew up in San Antonio was, was, was called Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. And I went to, maybe not much better, I went to Douglas MacArthur High School. So uh-huh. there, are lots of, there are lots of military bases and Air Force bases. Mm-hmm. In San Antonio. So there was this sort of trend to name the high schools after famous uh, military leaders. And then you sort of hear, well, okay, Robert E. Lee, was, uh, he was a confederate and he, he left the United States, but he was still a great general. Uh-huh. And, and then you learn, well, no, he wasn't. First of all, he lost. You he lost. lost. <laughs> Not lost that great. Before, so he couldn't have been that great. And we're starting to get books, I think from people of my generation or people with my background. There's a fantastic book by another Ohio State grad student. Ohio State has, I think when I was there, and I think it still has a very Very good military history program. Mm -hmm. And there's a book now called General Lee and Me, which is all about this this guy who's a historian, was in the military, and he Mm -hmm. was, I think, a one star general or something. And he grew up in the South, and Lee was one of his heroes. And he went to all Mm -hmm. the important, you know, the pilgrimage of all the important Robert E. Lee sites. And he learned all of the rubbish that you learn if you grow up in the South about Robert E. Lee. And he absolutely Mm -hmm. believed it until he became a historian. And started to learn other things, and he's written this very—it's almost like a historical autobiography of his mm-hmm. awakening to these new yeah. facts presented. So, yeah. So I think there are—there's—there are, thank God, possibilities for people who've been taught and trained mm-hmm. in these certain ways to break free of that. Even—even even mm-hmm. white dudes who 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 have no don't necessarily have an advantage for breaking away and doing that mm-hmm. right it would be, yeah. it would be easier I would, I would continue to enjoy my privilege as a white man if I if I didn't uh, disrupt these stories that I've been taught and it mm-hmm. makes it more complicated once you learn the truth about about these things yeah mm-hmm. we're way off the middle ages now talking about yes America
1: and so let's get back into the middle ages One of the things this podcast usually does is take down moments where media tends to get history intensely wrong, and often seemingly for no particular reason. And I'm, of course, pleased to be able to say that with the exception of the fact that I personally would describe Capelli's uh, lexicon abbreviatorum as really more off-white than yellow, personally. (laughs) But other than that, I would say, you know, no, no egregious errors. So I had a couple of questions related to that. First is, what was your favorite piece of real historical context or information to incorporate into the book?
0: Well, first, let me let me defend myself on the. uh, (laughs) So it's a book for people that don't know. It's a book of abbreviations that you would find in medieval manuscripts and medieval manuscripts at certain times are mostly abbreviations. Uh, contract- this are the ones
1: I work with certainly are. Yes, I spent a lot of time with um, Capelli because of that.
0: So Capelli was an author who made a dictionary of all of these abbreviations that you might find. And it is a book that starts out as a sort of white cream colored book on the cover. But my copy, which I looked at when I was thinking to describe this book, has turned yellow over the mm. over the ages. You, you might happen mm-hmm. it to happen to your copy if it's an old copy. But so anyway, that, but beyond that, <laughs> not quite right. Yeah. So, people who are creating content, people who are creating movies or books, are often uh, at a loss for doing that in some sort of historically accurate way. And I think that it's possible to still have a perfectly good uh, experience as a consumer of those products, of those movies mm-hmm. or books, and say, "Well, that was just fun," and I. I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe most of the history was just stupid and, and they didn't get any of it right. But but the characters were still interesting and I can still enjoy mm-hmm. the book or whatever. But I think there is, a, you know, a large audience that has I don't, higher standards. Is that the right word or greater expectations mm-hmm. of, of work of historical fiction ought to bring to them? And they yeah, they have greater expectations of their of their authors. And so you get um, who? Oh gosh, who is the woman who just died? Hillary uh, Mantel, right? Who wrote the the book?
1: Um, Wolf Hall is the uh, the one that for me first comes to mind, certainly. Right. So you
0: read Wolf Hall, and you think of Hillary Mantel writing that, and it just seems like as even as a trained historian who knows a lot about that time period, you think, man, she's really she's got it going on. This is just there's <laughs> nothing that rings false here, and that. Mm-hmm. Is, a different sort of feel to it. On the other hand, if you are not a professional historian and you're reading Paul, right. how would you know mm-hmm. what's true or not? And one of the difficult things, one of the dangerous things, is that sometimes people who are creating this content will create something that on the outside sort of looks real, right? Mm-hmm. If you're watching Braveheart and William Wallace, they're all sort of they're all sort of dirty. Because they're mm-hmm. up in the north of Scotland, and and they never washed their clothes, and they never you know took a bath, and we know that that's all just sort of ridiculous rubbish. Right. But you say, oh well, that that's what the Middle Ages looked like, right? Mm-hmm. You use a certain filter on the film to make it look darker because it was the dark ages. Ah, um,
1: uh, yes, the medieval if, gray filter. <laughs> you
0: know, as if you know, the, I mean, the sun and the moon and the atmosphere worked pretty much the same then. In fact, you would probably have your right. skies then. Uh, because there wasn't all the pollution that we've since created. Mm-hmm. So so there's those ways that they sort of subtly try to say, this is what the Middle Ages looked like. And if you're not informed, you're going to fall for that. Mm-hmm. Right? That this was a dark time. And therefore, every scene is raining and gray in the background. And then all of a sudden, you'll see something in Braveheart, for example. This was just a riot when I was in graduate school and that movie came out. Kevin Costner's on his horse and he's trying to rally all of the troops to make the big attack. And all of a sudden, he cries out, Freedom and he raises his head, freedom. And if you know something about the politics and the philosophy of leadership in that period in the Middle Ages, and about who William Wallace <laughs> was, he's not promoting freedom for all the serfs and you know peasants. I mean he's he's nobility. He's got some privilege. And mm-hmm. this idea that he would be like, you know, Thomas Jefferson or somebody in the American Revolution saying free you know, raising his hand and saying freedom even in that period, it would be a complicated notion that you'd have to unpack. Mm-hmm. But the fact that William Wallace, that, that Mel Gibson is doing that, just evokes some fantastic euphoric feeling, right? If you're an American sitting in the audience, mm-hmm. watching you feel like, yeah, okay, we're going <laughs> to overturn the bad, you know, people that are oppressing us. Yeah, we know what that's about. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it's all just, rubbish but if you don't know that you get wrapped up in what's happening in the in the scene and have a very different experience and a very different notion of what the middle ages is you're you're Mm -hmm. taken in by that in some ways um and those are more complicated to recognize even than do the costumes look right is that a medieval hat or not you know i could sort Mm -hmm. of quickly look that up but notions that are more philosophical more in the Mm -hmm mental context of the period, those are harder to know.
1: And um, people assume often that our ideas are often universal. And so the idea that they had different cultural ideas is very difficult for a lot of people to process without being kind of really led to that necessarily.
0: Yeah, right. Absolutely. Now, I guess on some level, if the, if the question you're asking is, why do, histor- why do content makers do this? Why do filmmakers mm-hmm. and, and authors of books do this? if they would just hire a consultant or get some books out of the library, they could solve this problem. Um, I'm sure you know, Danielle Sibolsky, the Five Minute Medievalist mm-hmm. um, teaches a course for content creators that answers all sorts of questions. It's an online course. And she tries to address questions like mm-hmm. what did medieval people eat. How did they cook that food? What did they mm-hmm. wear? How did they make their clothes? Um, all of those things that are part of the uh, material culture of the middle ages that writers of historical fiction want to know, and they're not as not so easily acceptable yeah. or accessible rather to find these things. So so there are resources out there if you are interested and if you are not lazy. Um, mm-hmm. because most of us have some idea of the middle ages already. You could write mm-hmm. a piece of historical fiction and never look anything up in a book because you've seen Kevin Costner's Robin Hood or you've seen right. or You've got all these images. You're like, oh yeah, I could do that. I'll just I'll use those images. And mm-hmm. now, in reality, I'm I'm making the situation even worse because I'm I'm copying mm-hmm. people who didn't do research and I didn't do research. Right. You're sort of exacerbating the problem. So, I feel I feel sort of lucky in that I'm not writing a piece of historical fiction. And my book is about the Middle Ages and about people in mm-hmm. the Middle Ages. And there are many stories about people studying the middle ages. There are objects that obviously come into this story that are from the middle ages. Um, but I don't feel like I had that, um, as big a problem with that because I, there's never a sort of flashback where you're in the middle ages and people have to right. dress differently or look differently or think differently. Um, that isn't something that happens in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, my, uh, stress was all around, I'm writing a story about medievalists and I'm a medievalist Mm -hmm. Also, I've just had my experience and I've observed the experience of some other people. Is this going to ring true to medieval Mm -hmm. experience? And I'm I'm very happy to hear from you that except for the Capelli uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) abbreviations, most of it seems like it, it mirrors your experience or it rings true for what the medievalist milieu is all about. So, so I'm happy to hear that. Thanks.
1: Yeah. I will say, I definitely had a moment of slightly uh, wincing it just in feeling a little bit called out when uh, I think it's Quint is listing his languages. And then there's like, you know, I think Isaacson is like, yeah, a little bit show offy, but okay. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. But, so that is, um, Oh gosh, I had a, I had a student, an undergrad who was, um, Neurodivergent, and he had a fantastic. Mm-hmm. Story. And the first day that I saw him in class was a class about ancient Greece, and he said, "Well, you know, I've I've uh, memorized the Iliad."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm like, wow, you've memorized that's uh, fan- what what in Greek? No, 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 the Robert Fagel's translation. But he, and he then started reciting. I mean, that's mm-hmm. it's amazing a gift yeah. this guy has. Years later, he wanted to go to graduate school, and I said, "Well, what?" What you know, you want to study, you want to study the ancient Greeks. That's great. I understand that you really love ancient Greece. Do you have any other languages? Oh, no. And his particular <laughs> neuro- neurodivergent state was that he could memorize these lengthy texts in English, mm-hmm. but learning languages didn't click for him. He tried, uh-huh. never took, he couldn't figure out how to do it. And I said, This is going to be a problem because when you go to graduate mm-hmm. school, you don't read the Iliad in English translation, you read it in right. Greek and you're going mm-hmm. to have, you know, you'll be expected to do that um, and to be able to know those languages. And it often, I think the show off part, just to, you know, give one example of how different that is. I'm, I'm not, I think I make Quint much smarter than me. The, the character of the grad student who knows 10 or 12 languages, but I'm pretty good in eight. And some of them I speak fluently because I've lived in those countries and some of them I can read. Yeah really well um because they're not really spoken languages but I'm also I'm always a little bit hesitant when somebody says oh you like you know other languages and I'm like yeah I I do and I it's not a thing that you should necessarily be embarrassed by but you also don't want to seem like some snooty right yeah
1: right And medieval studies, in particular, is a very language-heavy field. I mean, most of the primary texts I was working with were in Latin and in Hebrew yeah. for uh, for my book that just came out. You know, I lived in in and around Barcelona for about a year, which meant Spanish, but also uh, Catalan, because uh, people mostly there now prefer Catalan. Which is why my Catalan is now better, in fact, than my Spanish. <laughs>
0: And the other uh, thing you know. is that scholarship from around mm-hmm. the world, I mean, it's not just English speakers who are doing medieval scholarship. German, mm-hmm. is an important language. French is an important language. Spanish, mm-hmm. is an important language. And you sometimes, so I went to a conference, and again, trying not to be the snooty medieval guy who knows lots of languages, but I went to a conference in Rome, and I have Italian, so I was able to sort of mostly speak mm-hmm. to Italian folks around. But the session that I was in, um i was the third the last person to give a paper but the first person gave his paper in italian the second person gave his paper in german and the and i was the last one i gave mine in english but then you sort of have to make a compromise and when the question and answer comes up and you're you're going to ask a yeah. question, but not really ask a question you're going to make a comment right at um, one does you, you want to make that long comment in english um that mm-hmm. becomes <laughs> a common language of the of the scholarship but people are writing in the language of their own yep. you know in their mother language as they're writing scholarship. And so you have to, Mm -hmm. if you want to up on all the scholarship as a medievalist in particular, Mm -hmm. you need to be able to read those things. So Mm
1: -hmm. yeah, one of one of my favorite moments from graduate school, this was actually was my first semester, I was asked by a professor if I knew Italian, and I said no, because I had not studied Italian. And she then asked what languages I knew, and I told her, and it included some number of Romance languages, as well as Latin. And she said, yeah. oh, you know Italian, and gave me five books to read in Italian. And I will say, she wasn't entirely wrong. I could not hold a conversation in Italian, but I could read a book in Italian.
0: When I, so I have an Italian, Adamo is an Italian name, and my mm-hmm. grandparents, when they didn't want us to know what was going on, uh, where, the, where the Christmas gifts were hidden or whatever, they would always speak uh-huh. Italian sort of could never catch on on what was going on. And so I grew up not speaking Italian and I did Spanish and, and uh, French in high school. And then I took other languages, Latin and others in college. But Italian is a particularly fascinating language for this. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you know that you know Italian? If you know Spanish and French, you know Italian because mm-hmm. it all of the French verbs with all the Spanish endings on mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. manger, yeah. manger, I eat. And so that was thrilling. And then the other thing that I would highly recommend is having a girlfriend who is Italian who doesn't speak English, mm. um, or a boyfriend that or, must help. Yeah, or whatever you know, in whatever combination. If you find a mm-hmm. you native know, speaker who cannot speak your native language, then mm-hmm. really quickly. Um, yeah, yeah. So,
1: anyway, but yeah, I was in Palermo for a couple of weeks this summer, and actually had a lot of conversations that were basically in uh, what I would describe as essentially Catalan in an Italian accent on my part. <laughs>
0: uh huh.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: I'm always very happy to see a foreskin of Christ reference, I, you know, bring it up in uh, <laughs> questionable context on this podcast and in my teaching all the time. Yeah. But for you, was there any particular historical kind of anecdote or piece of information that you were especially excited to incorporate into the novel? So,
0: okay. So first of all, I want to defend the foreskin of Christ. Uh, that comes up in this novel as a, in a chapter that's all about forgeries. And there are many, mm-hmm. there's a lot of discussion about forgeries in this, uh, in this book that Professor Kantorowicz is teaching a seminar and the main student characters, Quint and Molly, are both in this seminar. And so he talks a lot about forgeries. And in one section of this seminar on forgeries, he talks about relics mm-hmm. that are promoted in the Middle Ages. And people, many people in the Middle Ages believe in relics. Probably some people are skeptical. But almost everybody knows that there are more relics given certain attributes than there could have possibly existed. So right. Everybody knows there are three heads of John the Baptist, right? Mm-hmm. And they were all different. And you think, like, wait a minute, some of these have to be forgeries, right? And there are these uh, sort of ideas that there are so many splinters from the cross of Christ that you could build an armada of ships. Mm-hmm. Right? And so a lot of these have to be fake. One of them that I would say, I cannot imagine how this could be a real thing is the foreskin of Christ right because first of all who is performing that bris and how would they know that this is something you want to save for later right at the moment it's just a baby mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not christ Though i will
1: say there are there there are jewish mothers who did save the force who did save the foreskin just uh, of of their son so that that would be the one not that i think that the any of them are authentic but that would be the arguable explanation
0: well thank you sarah <laughs> My cultural experience, so I did not know that. But, um, so anyway, that's, that's why that comes up and not just for the sort of prurient uh, value of, of the shock value of having the forest kind of Christ in the book. But your question is, what was my favorite, um, historical object or historical element to include in the book? And oddly, I think it's one that, that is, um, that's not, it's historical in a sense, but it's also a forgery. And Mm -hmm. there's a character uh, who is known to us from the early 20th century called the Spanish Forger. Mm -hmm. And the Spanish Forger isn't called the Spanish Forger at first because his forgeries are so good. Uh He creates medieval manuscripts that are very colorful and uh, illuminated and he's got, everything looks absolutely real, absolutely authentic. And he's even torn blank pages of parchment out of the backs of other manuscripts and Mm -hmm. authentic media to do this. And he's making these forgeries. He's making, let me start by saying, he's making these paintings that people are quite taken with. And he makes them and they look absolutely authentic and museums and collectors are buying them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Until a woman uh, comes along who uh, works in the Getty uh, Library, is that right?
1: Oh, she's uh, the Morgan, right?
0: The Morgan, sorry. Yeah. Belle de Costa Green is her name. Mm-hmm. And,
1: there's actually a novel about her that came out relatively recently, which I have not read, but a, I know people who have read.
0: There's a bunch of interesting stuff. She's, she's having yeah. a little renaissance. She's a very fascinating person. But as far as this part of the story is concerned, she's the sort of archivist librarian at the Morgan Library. Mm-hmm. and She gets these copies of the Spanish, of, of these beautiful manuscripts. And she says... These aren't authentic. These aren't medieval. And she Mm -hmm. recognizes that the green color Mm -hmm. manuscripts is actually a color that she knows as Paris green. It has a certain chemical composition that was not known, that was not created in the Middle Ages. It Mm -hmm. came out in the 1860s or something. And she's able to discern like what's real and what's not. Yeah. Based on her sort of knowledge of manuscripts. And so that, even though, They turn out not to be authentic medieval objects. I think those are fascinating to me that somebody Mm -hmm. would practice who who would have this idea about medievalism as a way to make money by Mm -hmm. people into buying your fake art. That's sort of fascinating on its own. And this guy is very prolific, lots of manuscripts. And then the sort of cleverness and training and um, insight of Da Costa Green, this woman who sees this that's also fascinating that you can sort of use your brain to figure mm-hmm. out what is what is authentic what should be treated as authentic and and what's not the spanish forger is also interesting to me because he's so amazing and so popular that people have started making forgeries of the uh-huh. forger mm-hmm. so you can go to conferences or antique shops or whatever and and you say oh is that the spanish forger and they say yes it is but mm-hmm. in, no, the Spanish forgery, <laughs> you know, was active during the early 1900s, and mm-hmm. this was made in 2010 by some other clever, mm-hmm. but they're not famous enough to get enough money, so they call it the Spanish forgery. So you're buying a forgery, right. a forgery. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's just I find that fascinating and really fun to yeah to, um, to think about.
1: Yeah, and a lot of these kind of accounts of forgeries I also found really fascinating, and this was not a story I'd been familiar with, was this uh, person named uh, Malskot, right, is the, the name who created these uh, kind of, well, restoration, but I guess what one might call uh, most generously a very creative restoration.
0: Right, right. So in, in northern Germany, in a town called Schleswig, and in another town called Lübeck, there are two churches that have these church murals on the, on the insides of the walls, And they had suffered, you know, and they were murals from the 12th century. And then over the years they'd suffered mold and dampness, you know, in Northern Germany and other things that happened to them. The Protestants happened to one of the churches and they sort of whitewashed over these murals. And then you didn't even know they were there anymore. But Mm -hmm. uh, the sort of air raids of world war II, a bomb lands on this one church in Lubeck and the church roof goes up in flames. The stone walls, S- remain standing but the whitewash on them sort of melts away and underneath you can see mm-hmm. a sort of faint mural that is clearly from the 12th century. Yeah. So this is then becomes known as the miracle of Lübeck right even though the church is bombed out something very religiously important has been revealed and the church community and the city fathers of Lübeck go and hire a restoration company. Mm-hmm. And the main painter that works for this restoration company is a guy named Malskott and he goes in and completely restores, restores in quotation marks, restores right. the new world in this church. And it's just fantastic. The colors are more vibrant. The characters are sort of coming out and and everybody's really just tremendously happy with this, right? And even the sort of Nazi leaders, uh, Goebbels and uh, Goering and and those folks who fancy themselves art connoisseurs, mm-hmm. they say this is the greatest restoration that's ever happened. The Nazi people should be proud that this is going on, and, and they commission textbooks uh, on these on one of these murals that then is brought into the uh, elementary schools so that mm-hmm. the students can learn this is the greatness of German culture, right? And they absolutely they have no idea, or if they do, they're not saying anything that this is a forgery. The same thing happens in a different church. A little bit later, uh, a restoration is done. And and it's also an excellent restoration of a 12th century mural. And this is then beneficial to the post-war German government. So Konrad Adenauer, who's the chancellor, goes and, you know, at the grand opening of this and says, this is a great moment of German culture. And he thinks this is a great thing to show to help the German people who are Depressed, and they just lost the war, and everything's sort of horrible. But here's this beautiful piece of artwork that Germans can be proud of. So during the, the Second World War and after the Second World War, two different churches, two different murals, both restored by the same guy, and both of them are useful in the sort of agenda of the of the rulers of the time. People start to realize that there are some odd things about these murals from the 12th century. Mm-hmm. They notice that the the face of the Virgin Mary looks just incredibly familiar. And somebody finally figures out it's the face of a famous movie star, (laughs) a woman named Knotek is her last name. And she's Mm -hmm. in all these sort of early Nazi films promoting, Mm -hmm. uh, she's in a movie called Heimat, Homeland, uh, which is all about the sort of danger of the Polish people invading Germany. So this is a propaganda film made to justify the Germans invading Poland. And people start to recognize her that she's a kind of famous actress of the twenties and thirties. And they're like, they're like, that that's the face on the Virgin Mary. It's this actress. Mm -hmm. And then they start to realize the other faces are maybe of people that they know. Then they start to realize they start to look at before and after pictures of the murals. And in the before pictures, all the apostles are barefoot. And and in the after pictures, they all have sandals on. But there's all sorts of artistic license that this guy has taken. Uh, And one of the great stories that, that, um, as this is presented in the book, Molly, the new graduate student, most of which, I mean, she's read lots of books to get to graduate school, but she also, her earliest uh, learning about the Middle Ages happens at the Renaissance Festival Mm -hmm. in Texas. And one thing, if if you're one of those snooty medievalists who goes to the Renfest and you're saying, well, you know, some of this is kind of true, but most of it isn't, and the costumes, Use polyester fabric to make them and they didn't have polyester or whatever. But the big one that everybody knows is that you walk around the Renfest eating a big turkey leg.
2: Because
0: mm-hmm. that makes you look like a sort of barbarian or somebody that has quote unquote medieval manners. And you just right. eat on that turkey leg and then you throw the used turkey leg over your shoulder and that's a big thing. But if you're a medievalist, you know, well, they didn't have turkey legs. And mm-hmm. the, this is an, an American bird and America, you know, had, there was no contact between America and Europe. Mm-hmm. Columbus, so you couldn't have had. Right. That. So Molly knows this, and she looks at the mural, and at the in the bottom sort of register in the bottom section of it, there are these roundels, these round sort of frames, and in the roundel there are pictures of turkeys. Mm-hmm. She flips out because, like, suddenly, like, she has a moment where she's in this seminar with all these older grad students and this very, you know, imposing professor, and she says, "The turkeys, that you know, it's of course it's a fake because they wouldn't have had turkeys." So, what's sad? So that's that is a fascinating story and a a complicated story of money changing hands and people using uh, history for propaganda purposes, for Mm -hmm. um, governmental propaganda that they want to hold up. And the sad part is, a sort of ironic part, is that Malscott, the painter who painted both of these, he's also really good. He's also able to recreate, Mm -hmm. recreate, quote unquote, something that looks really medieval, something really authentic, like the Spanish forger. Mm -hmm. But Malscott starts to get upset because nobody recognizes that he's done this. Uh Uh-huh everybody thinks well he's you know he's restored it but this is the glory of the past not some person from the present who's done this Mm -hmm. so upset he goes around trying to expose himself and saying this is fake that i did this he turns himself into the police trying to get arrested but nobody wants to believe him (laughs) because it's so useful to have these Mm -hmm. historic yeah in your town and it's going to help the economy Mm Are going to come and all of that, so yeah, that is a that is a fascinating story that's also told in the book and and included again because it's about forgeries and, and mm-hmm. that the theme in the book. So yeah, but I'm glad you liked that part. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, that was fascinating. Kind of final question, right, on this sort of issue of uh, history and how we kind of bring in history to fiction and other media. What kind of responsibility do you think creators ultimately have? In other words, uh, what are your thoughts about essentially when it's reasonable to take licenses and uh, when maybe it isn't, or you know, essentially kind of what are what are the responsibilities or obligations of somebody creating fiction about the medieval past in terms of you know should they care about history and uh, when, as I said, when is it okay to make changes for the sake of a story?
0: Yeah. Well, I think maybe you have this feeling as well, and I have this feeling because I'm a historian. I think the closest you can get mm-hmm. to what's authentic, to what is historical, the more true the rest of your novel is is going to ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with that is, as writers, as creators, we did not grow up in that time period, so we've got all yeah. sorts of things block us from doing that. Mm-hmm. And like, like other th- like the writing characters of color, you have to really work hard against your mm-hmm. own biases, against your own upbringing. And you've got to do a lot of research. So it is a lot of work. And it's a lot of work that may not be appreciated. Um, mm-hmm. The way that Mall Scott is maybe is not appreciated. Uh-huh. If you go to work And people read your novel and they go, Oh, that was great. And they sort of toss that one away. And mm-hmm. the next one, you want your readers to go, oh my gosh, every aspect of this in the landscape, in the architecture, in the clothing, in the food, all of that was so real. And, and I, even, I even had to look some things up to find out. And it looks like everything is actually in history books that's in this novel or that's in this mm-hmm. movie. Oh, wouldn't it be great if all of the consumers of our art was <laughs> like that, that they took it so seriously right. that they would want to check your work in some mm-hmm. way. Um, and then you would be held to a higher standard. Now, I think the I think the way that that diverges from being absolutely historically accurate is when you get to something like Game of Thrones,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which let's face it, has zombies and dragons in it. Right. And I don't know everything about the Middle Ages, but I'm pretty sure that there weren't actually zombies and dragons. Um, I think
1: we can be relatively safe on assuming that one. Yeah. So, and
0: that's fine. I mean, I think zombies are cool. Dragons are cool. They Uh make make tension in a story they make for great conflict and, and it can be a fantastic adventure story. And so if you're taking that license and saying in the medieval world that I'm creating, Uh uh, I'm going to have some dragons and I'm going to have some zombies and you go, okay, great. That makes the story more fun. But do I then as the reader say, I'm allowing you to have dragons and zombies but I want the buttons on that uniform to be exactly the buttons that uh-huh. you know that the knights would wear, or whatever. His hauberk doesn't really look like a hauberk of a of a, that a medieval knight would wear. The chainmail doesn't look right um, the way you're describing it. And okay, I, I'm fine with dragons. And I'm fine with zombies. But that other stuff you have to really you know mm-hmm. work to get to get to. And frankly. So, so here's an embarrassing admission. I've never watched Game of Thrones and I've never read any books from Game of mm-hmm. Thrones. So I don't know if, uh, what's his name? Martin does this or if he does it well or if he does it poorly. I don't know. Mixbag. Oh, okay. So you <laughs> well, that would you know, you'd sort of expect that. But what is our responsibility? That's your question. I think it depends on on who you are. And mm-hmm. there are plenty of trained historians who are writing historical fiction. Right. And they, I think are doing a fantastic job at that. And you would, and if they weren't, I would be on them like nobody's business and say, Mm -hmm. well, you're lazy, you know better than this. Yeah. I don't know if George R.R. Martin was, you know, trained as a medievalist or if this is all out of his imagination, but somebody- I think just
1: enthusiast.
0: Oh, yes. so somebody like Tolkien, for example, mm-hmm. whom you know, is a medieval literature professor who, you know, edits and translates the Green Knight and, and has mm-hmm. all the languages, right? And, yeah. and is able to create languages for his characters. I think just by by being who he is, he set the bar much higher. And yeah. it's okay with me if he has orcs and wizards in his story. Mm-hmm pretty sure that orcs didn't exist but you know I, I allow him that to make the story exciting but what then the payoff for that is that other things that he does ring absolutely true the mm-hmm. language sounds like a language mm-hmm. He knows his yeah. work so I think it depends the expectation that we have and the responsibility that you have depends on sort of who you are
1: and I always find it interesting in terms of kind of what goes behind the choices that are made, because uh, there's certainly, I will say, you know, in taking somebody like a, a person who comes in for frequent critique on this podcast is uh, Ridley Scott uh, as a filmmaker, oh, who uh, okay. I'm yeah. not fond of. Yeah. And sometimes it's, so to take the film Kingdom of Heaven, for example, sometimes it's little right. things, like it bothers me that the Templar crosses are wrong. I just find that it's like a tiny thing that one could have looked up and gotten right, and it irritates me that they didn't. <laughs> but then there's also things that I think are bigger, like that the overall story is kind of like somebody read a Wikipedia article about the siege of Jerusalem while very drunk and then wrote down what they remembered from it and then made a movie based on that. Yeah. And on the one hand, do you have to be 100% faithful if it doesn't fit your story not necessarily on the other hand if your story is ultimately a in my opinion less interesting than what really happened i think that's a bad move and also in this particular case the way the story gets rewritten it actually essentially writes out multiple female characters right Right. So multiple real women who were kind of central, arguably, in this story, who then were going to say, all right, we're going to get rid of them. We're going to have like one woman max in this movie. We cannot possibly have a second woman who's an actual character in this film.
2: Right.
1: Right. And, you know, and that is, I think, a bigger problem than than the Templar crosses, as annoyed as I am by the Templar crosses, right? That if we're making choices that are both wrong, but that also often tend to, I find, be in the service of... a uh, telling this story about the medieval past as one that is, you know, as we have discussed already, exclusively white and one in which uh, women are somehow near absent. Uh, you know, women apparently got invented in the 1990s or there's, you know, precisely one in there in order to justify a romance.
0: Yeah. And this is this bigger question too of like there are cultural artifacts like the Templar Cross and those sorts of things, but, they, but on a bigger level, it's harder to recognize our, on the level of ideas. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, you, so I think the point you're making is that Ridley Scott decides how many women, which woman, well, what is she going to do? How big a role is she going to have? That absolutely reflects who Ridley Scott is yep. and the time that he lives in. It has nothing to do with the Middle Ages. And mm-hmm. there are examples of this that I, I'm also always a little bit skeptical of when they try to do something that's very politically correct. And I think there are moments of this in Kingdom of Heaven where they try to say, well, here's this interaction, right? There's one good crusader who has yes. with with the evil Muslims. And mm-hmm. he learns that maybe they're not as bad as, they're just human beings. Right.
1: right. We're not so different. Yeah. And, you know, that
0: impulse, I think, comes from the time in which we live. And they're trying to make mm-hmm. it reflect something that is important in our culture now. And okay, fine. But, Again, being lazy, not looking at mm-hmm. the source. There's there's one uh, source book that I used to use with my students all the time, teaching the Crusades, that is all of the Muslim crusade sources from their point of view. And they have fantastic, you know, sort of, there are interactions, intercultural interactions that go on because the Western crusaders occupy that territory for a certain amount. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're never going to see the people that you're... Uh, right. Sometimes you see them on a daily basis and you automatically have to learn things about each other. And those are fascinating mm-hmm. stories about um, the different sort of bathing practices, mm-hmm. um, what sort of body hair do you leave on or shave off? And, you know, and the male crusaders are sort of stunned by this when they see air yeah. of counterparts um, and, you know, food, all sorts of things and how they, and how they think about women, all of those things could be a, a source for a mm-hmm. kingdom of heaven, for a crusader epic that would be so much more interesting. Yeah, uh, and on some level would would say, yeah, they're just like us. We're all the same. And on some level would say, wow, we are not the same.
2: Mm-hmm. There,
0: there are some huge differences, which I think is one thing that's also important in our own time when we're thinking about diversity and inclusion in those. So mm-hmm. we don't just say well, we're all humans and we right. all get along. I mean, that's just, that's very simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it is aggravating when you see that, when you see that in, in one of these historical fiction movies and you know better, you know, that there are sources mm-hmm. that made that uh, sort of richer scene or a richer example of what they're trying to promote. And I'm not against what they're trying to promote, mm-hmm. but it's done in a sort of ham-handed way. So,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So you meant you talk about uh, Kingdom of Heaven a lot on your podcast? That is a <laughs> well,
1: I covered I have covered Kingdom of Heaven and I've covered uh Ridley Scott has done too many arguably medieval films and I don't like any of them. So did
0: he just do the last duel was that
1: Yes. Really, oh
0: my gosh. Yeah. I uh,
1: I hated uh, the last duel more than maybe anything I've ever covered.
2: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. I actually teach a course uh, called Medieval at the Movies, which is sort of inspired by this podcast. That's one of the few films that I've watched that I've said, I would not teach this because I think ultimately the damaging and triggering ways in which sexual assault is portrayed outweighs anything that students would learn about tropes about the Middle Ages.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, you've got lots, but you've got lots of other material from really Scott. Oh, like yes. Others, uh, if you oh, know. yes.
1: I've, yeah, I've taught Kingdom of Heaven multiple times. I've also taught his Robin Hood. Uh,
0: Is that, what's his name? Um, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to see, just as a sort of um, sidebar, I went to see Russell Crowe as Robin Hood in Kalamazoo when the big medieval. Mm. <laughs> because I brought undergraduate students with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was fantastic and they would go to sessions and come back and report what they'd learned. Uh, but the Robin Hood movie was coming out that weekend and on Friday nights we took a cab over and and uh, watched the Robin Hood movie and they were ruthless because mm-hmm. they know things about the Middle Ages and they're watching this movie supposedly is in the Middle Ages. Uh-huh. And they, would, they offered some critique, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. in a very animated way, so yeah.
1: Yes, it's it's one of a number of films that I'm like, oh, you don't know what the Magna Carta is. You you did not read the Magna Carta before making the Magna Carta a central part of your plot, did you?
2: Yeah, yeah, right,
1: right. So speaking of films, one of the usual uh, kind of closing segments on this podcast is what I call the Fabula Nostra, where we come up with some kind of uh, idea of a piece of media inspired by this one. And sometimes even come up with casting so inspired by that i was wondering if you have any if uh, if your book was to be adapted into a film and you got to weigh in on casting choices are there any uh, kind of dream castings that you have for any of your characters well
0: from what i understand the writer of the novel is rarely consulted on anything <laughs> right, after he felt the, right to the book but if it were possible and if if any of your listeners are in the film industry, I think I think this book, this novel, has some potential as a movie. There's lots of action. There's lots. It's very visual. But that being said, who would play the characters? Um, I have thought mostly. I've thought about the character of Professor Kondorovich, maybe selfishly because everybody's going to say that's me. It might be the white professor. But at first, I thought I would love to see Paul Giamatti mm-hmm. uh, play this part. And then, but recently, I watched a movie with. Ben Kingsley, though mm-hmm. so, know Ben Kingsley he would, be, mm-hmm. he would be fantastic in that role. I'm not as good with the other with casting the other characters. An actor that I quite like. What's the movie? Nope. That Jordan Peele just did. Oh yeah. Um, Daniel Kaluuya. Is that how you say his name?
1: Kaluuya. Uh, yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think he he's very interesting. He was also in the movie Get Out, I think. Mm-hmm. And yes. All of these have you know undercurrents or themes of racism, them. so I think it'd be great if he was the Black graduate student in the movie, mm-hmm. and then the only other sort of younger actress that I think of, if I'm thinking of Molly as the new graduate student who comes, is the woman who was in Ozarks, Gen- Julia Gardner. Gardner
1: is that her name? Hmm. I don't. I don't know her actually.
0: I'm Jennifer Garner. She's a little wispy woman, um, mm-hmm. with, at least in this show, curly blonde hair, but she's you know she's feisty. She's sort of take no prisoner. Mm-hmm. Accept no bullshit from anybody. And she would be, she'd be, it'd be interesting to see her in that role because she, mm-hmm. she has a sort of younger look. She might be 30 years old by now, mm-hmm. but, but she looks like a younger person. Um, mm-hmm. That's as far as I've gotten. But, um, all right. I would maybe I would ask for a, a, a role in the back. I would be one of the audience members during uh-huh. you know, mem- when a paper is given. I could see mm-hmm. like, her. Oh, mm-hmm, yes. Oh, yeah. Here's what I think about that. But I don't think anybody's going to care who I want to be and want to have in the movie uh, <laughs> if, it, if it gets that far. But that would be fun. Yeah, that's a great question.
1: And I would, I would love to see how they uh, they cast the extras uh, at talks because there's always a uh, a colorful cast of individuals I found who showed up at the uh, the Yale talks in general.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe it reflects reality in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe.
1: Mm. Maybe. Um, So, Phil, thank you so much for coming on. Before we finish up, are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? Where can they find your book? Are there places where they could see you talk about the book?
0: Yeah. So, yes, 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 and yes. Uh, First of all, thanks again for having me. This was a great pleasure, even as we wandered off into other areas. (laughs) This was a great talk, and I appreciate that. So, yes, where can you find this? The book is called The Medievalist. Uh, and it, it, you can find all sorts of information at my website, which is philadamo.com. It's all one word, all lowercase, P-H-I-L-A-D-A-M-O.com, philadamo.com. At that website, you can find, uh, more information about the medievalist, but also other books that I've written. Uh, there's a link. So that will take you to a place where you can buy the book. There's also a link that will take you to, uh, the book tour that I'm, I'm actually on, I think right now as you're, you're. as this podcast uh, drops a couple of weeks into the future, I'll be on the road somewhere. I'm in my home in Minneapolis right now, but uh, I think I'm going to be in Cleveland and then Cincinnati, at least in those times when the podcast is relatively new. Um, And there's a link on my website, philadamo.com, that takes you to a page that is all about the book tour and shows you where am I going to be on these dates? What's the bookstore? uh, What are these events? And I think there are maybe 10 or 12, bookstores between I go to Minneapolis I get up to Boston and then I go down to Houston and then come back mm-hmm. up to Minneapolis so it's a big sort of eastern part of the United States partly I'm going there because I have friends there and I want to see them. i mean going to sleep mm-hmm. on the <laughs> office but uh, I've found some really really beautiful interesting bookshops that are willing to host an event so if anybody's in those areas and you are able to quickly check out the the book tour link uh, definitely come by and say hello
1: All right. Great. Thank you so much. For those of you who have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. And I have one today from Alaskan Bvy baby, maybe. Amazing, interesting, cannot get enough of it. I adore this podcast. I was looking for someone who had talked about the movie Beckett, and lo and behold, I stumbled upon the history podcast of my dreams as a Jew and history minor myself that has sparked my interest in the Middle Ages medieval period and inspired me to take a class this fall semester focused on that period of Western history. Come for the laughs, stay to learn fascinating facts that I'm sure will eventually come in super handy at Bar Trivia. We can only hope. So thank you to Alaskan Baby for your review. And please follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah IftDecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Phil, thank you again. It was lovely having you.
0: Thank you. Great to be here, Sarah. Thank you.
1: And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.